0: Look at up. Listen, I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything
1: in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
3: Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined in our final show for the year by Joan braun who is a professor of philosophy at the Gonzaga University, as well as the author of upcoming book, Very Upcoming, Understanding and Countering Fascist Movements from Void to Hope. Thanks for joining us, Joan.
2: Thanks for having me. Joan, I guess
3: just to begin with, why this book now?
2: Well, this was an attempt to think about a couple of different frameworks and the limitations of, of them and how to move past certain limitations in thinking about how to fight fascism. So the book is premised on the idea that we have to understand fascism according to two different dimensions, that we have to be thinking about fascism as a social movement, seeking power, and always already connected to sources of power. And that means it's not just something extreme or bizarre or at the fringes of society, but it's always already connected to power. And it has to be fought as a social movement. So it requires countervailing social movements to fight back. It's also, at the same time, made up of individuals who are drawn in by various different factors, various different motivations, and I think it's important to look at that and and to look at fascist psychology and I think we can do that without sort of ignoring their agency and responsibility for the harm they do, but that actually if we look at what's driving people, we can actually get to a more radical, more productive politics.
3: One of the things that you address in the book is that there are the sort of the multiple ways in which people and are drawn into these movements and ways in which these movements understand themselves, but that if we only focus on one or the other, we sort of miss the point. Could you tell us how can we understand fascist movements?
2: Yeah. So one of the things I'm doing is I'm looking at narratives and I'm thinking about the ways in which fascism thrives on a desire for destruction and rebirth, which we see in both powerful figures like Steve Bannon and then also in sort of -of run-of-the-mill, you know, sort of online propaganda. And you know, I think understanding how these movements operate is important for resisting and and for building a real alternative. So we have to have really um, strong boundaries. We have to We have to create spaces that are free of fascism. So all of that sort of work of protest and deplatforming is is totally essential. And I think you know long run, we need we need an analysis of where people are coming from. And what we're getting wrong as a society in responding. So it's a critical look at certain things like, for example, the countering violent extremism industry that takes more of a social work and policing adjacent approach to drawing people out of hate and looking at how we can sort of move past some of these limitations and have a more social movement-based approach.
1: John, you've made reference to Steve Bannon. In Australia, When he was treated to a long interview on Australia's leading current affairs TV show, this was in 2018, it was justified by the journalists responsible on the basis that doing so was essential to understanding Trump's wildly successful populism, as they put it, and their plans for China. So my question is, is there anything particularly wrong with that approach? And how do you think figures like Bannon should be treated in the media?
2: Yeah, I think it's really dangerous to platform these people as just a good way to understand something. There's already massive literature and research. These people have already made really clear what they think on a thousand different platforms. Bannon has a podcast. There's been a, a tremendous amount written by and about Bannon. And I think one of the things about Bannon, you know, he's very slick, as a lot of these people are, and he's able to sort of give himself plausible deniability in various different ways. So I called it in the book signaling that he's able to signal to fascist movements and drop all kinds of hints. And at the same time, sort of disclaim to actually have the views that he holds in all different kinds of ways. So it's very sneaky. It draws people in, just like a lot of of far right recruitment, people don't always get the full message until they're in. So it's, yeah, I I do believe it's dangerous to just say, oh, this is another like informative opportunity, right?
1: It kind of reminds me also of the phenomenon where I guess in media generally and journalism, a fascist figure would appear and they had an interesting haircut or they presented themselves in some way that was understood to be novel and palatable. And it seemed to be the case that many were kind of either willingly or unwillingly kind of sucked in by that approach. So I guess your concern is with, I guess, philosophical approaches. Is there any sense in which the ways in which these ideas about fascism are presented that what is it about these the ways in which these ideas are presented that facilitates that kind of platforming and discussion when other approaches might be a little more serious?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the assumption that fascism is extremism, that it's something... Bizarre and fringe, and that you'll be able to recognize it by its swastika tattooed faces and biker gangs leads to this sort of shock when fascism comes along looking normal and looking connected to institutions of power or just social normalcy. So, we had all of these articles, you know, coming out, and we still see it where, you know, the press is like just amazed that fascists do things like you know, eat food and play video games and drive cars, right? And this amazement is actually serves as a propaganda and recruitment tool. So simply by presenting themselves as normal, strategically, you know, fascists have been able to get this impressed reaction, because there's still this expectation of the extreme, the bizarre and the fringe behavior and appearance. And and then they get they get an audience, right? They're able to propagandize. For example, there was a video that came out by the Young Turks interviewing the head of white nationalist group Identity Europa, early on in their in their organizing, and I, I know that you know the Young Turks regret this interview, but that interview you know recruited a particular young woman who then became like their you know, their women's network coordinator, because she watched it and kind of wanting to believe it already. But she watched it and was like, oh, wow, look how clean cut he is. Look how normal he seems. He says he likes food that isn't white people food, right? (laughs) So it becomes a recruitment tool when we platform these people out of this sort of shock of their like normalness.
3: One of the things you look at in relation to Steve Bannon is his embrace of the concept of the Kali Yuga Could you explain to our listeners what is uh, the Kali Yuga and why it's relevant to understanding fascism?
2: Yes. So the Kali Yuga is a concept that comes out of Hinduism that that was appropriated by Julius Evola and Savitri Devi and others who were part of sort of esoteric fascism and esoteric Hitlerism, creating a sort of fascist uh, religion, according to which there is a cycle of destruction and rebirth that societies inevitably decline and rise again where because fascism is fundamentally a violent and hierarchical ideology, according to which some people are simply worth less and other people are worth more. And because they are worth more should simply be in power. What that cycle means on this ideology is that fundamentally people that, that, that ri- the rise of more democratic and more equal societies is a, is a decline in history and that that decline has to be replaced by the right people sort of coming to power again, dominating again. And even though that cycle is somewhat inevitable in the sense that they believe that history cannot simply continue in a democratic and equitable vein indefinitely, they also seem to believe that there are ways you can sort of alter or manage that, that cycle to make sure that the cycle comes back in particularly the way at the time that you want it to return. So it's a very dangerous mystical, pseudo-scientific view of history, which is not, you know, this is not, by the way, the responsibility of Hinduism at all. This is an appropriation and and misuse of a particular sort of apocalyptic vision, which most religions have to some degree, that there's some sort of change that will happen in the future, or that there are cycles in time, or that history is going somewhere. But this appropriation has been really dangerous And for Steve Bannon, it's become, you know, a bit of a theme that pops up various places. So, for example, his fascination with this book, The Fourth Turning, was a huge part of of the way this showed up. And The Fourth Turning book was a sort of popularization of the theory that history moves in cycles. It's not explicitly fascist, but it has definitely some, like, problematic sides. But then, you know, there was also there've been other indications as well and signals as well from Bannon in other works. And then also this guy that got close to him and interviewed him, got him to sort of cough up some further commitments that he had along those lines um, in in Benjamin Teitelbaum's book, which by the way, I don't think is, is the right way to do research. That's a little bit of a tangent, but Teitelbaum, Benjamin Teitelbaum who wrote this book about Bannon, you know, has also sort of emphasized that forming friendships with fascists can be an effective way to do research which i fundamentally disagree with and i have critiqued numerous times i'm also part of this group that's doing this book that's coming out in march on the ethics of researching the far right with antonia van and megan tinsley and aurelian mondon and one of the themes that keeps coming up in that book in various ways is is boundaries right that you need to like you need to not befriend or or join the thing in order to understand the thing right a participant observation, when you're talking about fascism, is a whole different thing, right? As opposed to like participating in a social movement that's positive to learn about it. You don't want to do that kind of friendship building and participant observation with fascism. But but at any rate, we you know we have now documented ver- in various ways Bannon's fascination with what he calls traditionalism, which is the ideology of Julius Evola, Marcia Eliot, and others which is connected to this cyclical view of history and which also believes that there's a sort of secret religion that only the elite, those destined to to rule, have access to, that there's a kind of hidden truth behind various world religions that special people get to know, that special people who get to rule society have access to. So it's a, it's a highly elitist, highly anti-democratic philosophy.
3: I feel like my invite might have been lost in the mail to that one. <laughs>
2: Me too. <laughs> and it's, yeah, you know, I fund, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's very condescending, you know, Bannon loves to call himself a Catholic, but it's very condescending toward ordinary people of faith, right? To say, oh, well, you think what you believe isn't really the truth. There's like this hidden reality, like lurking behind your religious practice that I have access to. Yeah.
3: I, I thought it was interesting in your quote from the Titlebound book where Bannon seems to think that Trump is a you know, essentially just a means to an end. I don't know how popular that would make him in the Trump camp. Do you, think, do you think that they have caught up with the the idea that he thinks that Trump is just a stepping stone to President Bannon?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there have been a lot of indications of that. I mean, there were so many leaks in the Trump administration. And, you know, I would I would be surprised if Bannon wasn't part of leaking things, just based on my, you know, kind of intuition about the things coming out. But I think, yeah, I mean, Bannon's podcast now, his whole thing is, you know, Trump, Trump, Trump. And he constantly, you know, sucks up to Trump's ego, and is constantly hoping that he's going to become this, you know, close confidant again, and he's going to be able to, like, you know, whisper in the ear of of the president. But but there were so many indications as well that he thought Trump was dumb and unqualified. So I, I don't know where that relationship stands right now, but I'm, I'm sure that there's plenty of data <laughs> that anyone that was blindly loyal to Trump would, would be weighing if they were trying to decide whether to, to trust Bannon with power in a potential Trump administration, for example.
3: Uh, there are some people who see themselves in this uh, final cycle of the Kali and just wish it would the next cycle would hurry up and get here, and to that end, they become accelerationists some of the academic treatment of accelerationism is quite fevered, and some of it is less fevered, but perhaps also problematic. Could you tell us what you see as the issues with accelerationism in, I guess, the academic and CVE spheres?
2: Yeah, I'm super concerned about the kind of hyper-focus that arose around this concept, which has been fairly ill-defined by most of the people using it. On the one hand, there's a really correct understanding of the reality that fascism as an ideology involves a desire to sort of speed up the apocalypse, that there's a destruction and rebirth of the world. I think is I think that's a real and, and accurate um, assessment of, of you know being a part of fascist ideology. But just like you know the term extremism or the term radicalization, a lot of these terms that have been pushed by centrist think tanks, and law enforcement and government agencies, these, these labels get applied to a variety of different social movements and social institutions in ways that are really quite sloppy. So for example, you know, the left and the right get labeled the same way very often. So you'll see Black Lives Matter or, or anti-fascists, or Palestinian rights activists, or environmental rights activists called the same kinds of things that you would hear ISIS called, right? Or that you would hear neo-Nazis called. And to me, that's intellectually very sloppy. And it's based on these very, very thin abstractions, right? So when you back up far enough and and you find find something generalizing enough, like believing in a utopian future, right? Or believing that things might get worse before they get better. Like, sure, you can group a whole ton of people under that kind of a a label, right? Right. Um, but it's not good scholarship. It's just not. I mean, this is the most the sort of counterterrorism studies field, except for the critical terrorism studies, people that are critiquing the field itself. It's the most anti intellectual field of study I've ever encountered. The level of scholarship that you have to demonstrate to be taken seriously is just way lower. I, I just just to be honest, you know, like, and you see people that are treated as experts simply because, of, you know, because they were former neo Nazis themselves and this kind of thing. So part of it is like, are we being specific enough about what we're talking about? And then also there, there's been a lot of talk about coalitional acceleration and a variety of other kinds of terms that are ways of sort of, um, spreading this belief or, or, or conveying this belief, which I think is inaccurate, that ideology matters less now, that there's a breakdown in belief. And that people just want to burn things that there might be this sort of coalition emerging between, you know, ISIS and neo-Nazis or neo-Nazis and the left or whatever, right. Or that even within the far right, that people no longer care about their ideological differences. And I just think the evidence for that just isn't there, right. What does happen is people will collaborate sometimes, right. Like you can see with, you know, the attack on the Capitol after the election there were people there who were of various different right wing persuasions for sure, like working together to occupy the capital. But that does not mean that people don't individually believe things and hold to those beliefs quite strongly. Similarly with, you know, we see, you know, people sharing, you know, sharing memes or slogans, you know, among various different factions. It, it, you know, this is, there, there's, people are in, there's a, there's a misunderstanding, I think, that, you know, in the words of one of Aaron Winter's articles, that, that all of my enemies must be friends, right? That everybody I don't like is probably in on something. And it's a kind of, I can just kind of picture, you know, some, you know, paranoid FBI agent sitting in some office somewhere, you know, drawing a little map and trying to come up with some way that, you know, anarchists and ISIS and neo-Nazis are like all part of this same movement. and it's just totally bunk, right? So I'm very worried when I see, you know, more of these concepts like fuzzy ideology, salad bar extremism, coalitional accelerationism, which are just all these different ways of saying that ideology and political differences and v- and views, worldviews are just becoming less relevant. And it's it's simply not true. Now you can certainly find mass shooters who, in their rage at the world, will draw various justifications for their rage from all different kinds of things they find online. And there will be contradictions and so forth. But when it comes to actual movements, organizations, organizing, people have beliefs. And certainly when it comes to the far right versus the left, those, the differences in beliefs are profound. The ways in which people think about what it means to face a sort of transformation, it's very different. So the left, for example, will talk about the ways contradictions within capitalism can give rise to change. But that's completely different from the cycle that um, somebody like Sivitri Devi is describing, the sort of fascist cycle of the world has to be destroyed so the right people can come to power, a fundamentally hierarchical elitist vision. It's totally different from a, a leftist vision of sort of what Eric Fromm calls prophetic messianism, that there's potential within society, that people are going to rise up and transform the world, that we're going to create a new era of justice and peace. Like in, in total abstraction, both of those things involve change. They might involve appeals to revolution or society-wide transformation, but the intent and the worldview are are completely at odds. So it's that sort of lumping everything together that I think I'm worried about the most when I look at these kinds of categories.
3: Joan, you suggest the sort of intellectual poverty that's being employed here, but perhaps not matched uh, in terms of funding. The, the Department of Homeland Security not getting any bang for their buck here from these people?
2: I mean, it's, it's fascinating to watch people sort of compete for, for DHS funding. And I've had numerous conversations with different people and different organizations pleading with them not to take this money. You know, I think if people want to be in solidarity with Muslim communities under attack, for example, or with any community of color or any minority community facing attack from the far right, it's really, we have to understand that the attacks people face are not just from fringe organizations, they're also from the state. And even though within the US, DHS loves to, the Department of Homeland Security loves to rename things and claim things have now changed, so that no, no, it's not CVE anymore. Now it's targeted violence prevention. We still see the same organizations with the same concerns, you know. So, you know, as long as the Council on American Islamic Relations or the Brennan Center for Justice are signing petitions saying, please don't take this money, it's it's troubling to me to say, to see community organizations and and academic institutes kind of competing for that funding. And it sure helps to get funding when you have a new name for something, right? Like, oh, it's so innovative. Like, we have this new category that we're going to research.
1: Joan, as well as identifying some of the limitations of particular approaches to questions regarding accelerationism and and understanding fascism more generally, you also write about some of the limitations of some of the approaches that are taken to rehabilitating or drawing away individual members of uh, fascist groups and, and align that with something that's termed a, a compassion narrative, that it's in some way necessary or advisable to express particular compassion for uh, the men who are drawn to these movements. Can you elaborate a little more on on that question and suggest, I guess, other ways of approaching the individual circumstances of people recruited to these groups and movements and how they can be better situated in terms of the broader social processes that kind of provide them for the space to join these groups.
2: Yes. This has been a concern of mine for for some time. It's almost a, it's a script. It's a kind of genre. And the story always goes something like this. There are dozens of these stories told by former um, members of hate groups, I. Came from this, I was in some sort of situation of struggle, or I came from a broken home, or I was lonely, or X, Y, and Z, right? There's this sort of beginning of difficulty and struggle in life. And then I I chose this, I made this terrible choice. I joined a hate group to fill my need for belonging and purpose. And then I encountered a very nice person (laughs) from a member of one of these groups that I hated. Right. So I met a nice black person. I met a nice Jewish person. I met a nice gay person. And this person changed my life with their compassion and their forgiveness. They showed me kindness when um, I was not worthy of kindness. And so at that point in the story, there's always this kind of like, Oh, I had like this cognitive dissonance. How is it possible that this group of terrible evil people is showing me kindness? I've never experienced this before. How can I make sense of this? And then sort of le- leading to the person eventually leaving the movement and reforming their life. Now I I have s- there are so many different sort of potential issues with this. On the one hand, it's not the case that this never happens that someone meets a nice person who transforms their life, right? It's certainly not the first time that a, a member of a minority community has been kind to the neo-nazi, right? but there certainly are cases where people, find a a mentor or someone who's transformative in their life. However, it's a vast oversimplification of what really happens. Um, If you look at most of these stories, most of these people had a lot of other stuff going on that was already leading them to want to leave the movement or need to leave the movement. There were potential, there were jail issues in some cases. Some people have the, the stories they tell happened while they were incarcerated The movement was disintegrating that they were in. There were threats to their family. They were ostracized from society. And in fact, oftentimes the kinds of distancing that anti-fascist tactics create played a role, which is often not part, it was almost never part of that story. So if you think about, for example, one of the stories people love to quote to me is the story of Derek Black, who grew up in a white supremacist family and famous white supremacist family. And then when he went to college... After having been indoctrinated so thoroughly, he met other people, he took classes, he learned other things, but he continued to profess his white supremacist beliefs and continued to be white supremacist organizer to the point where the students organized and they protested and ostracized him essentially from all social life on campus. And at that point, there were a couple of Jewish students who invited him to these Shabbat dinners at their uh, dorm. And the story that I hear over and over again from people who've read the book about this guy's life is this terrible neo-Nazi was invited to dinner with Jewish people and that changed his heart. And now he's no longer a Nazi, but it ignores actually the fact that he was without any other refuge, right? So the, the, the protests had forced him to reconsider his life and who he wanted to be because he had been completely kicked out of the life of the, of the university. So, When we look at all of these cases, there's almost always more going on. And so that leads me to ask, why is this story always being told, right? So why is this narrative told over and over and over? Like, it's just a script. Every single neo-Nazi that ever go, former neo-Nazi or former hate group member that goes on television or writes a memoir, of which there are dozens, tells versions of this same story. And I think it serves a variety of different functions. One of them, if we're being a little more cynical, is that it, it it basically presents kindness as the way to transform people, which undermines protest. It undermines anti-fascist approaches that aren't based on compassionate outreach. And it also shuts down criticism that people might face, right? where Because anyone that shows up to a talk uh, or an event and demands proof of reform or has higher expectations or isn't satisfied or isn't forgiving is then seen as sort of undermining this societal project that's the way to end fascism, right? So it's like suddenly you're the enemy if you have tough questions. Now, to be fair, like most of these people don't will say like, oh, I'm here to take questions or "I'm, I'm open to criticism or whatever. And there's a certain sincerity to a lot of that. But There's also a whole network of organizations and think tanks and organizations that are really promoting and feeding this narrative. And I think in some cases, people don't even really know what motivates them. Like, it's hard to know just as human beings, like what motivates you to make a life changing decision, whether it's leaving an organization or leaving a marriage or, or whatever, right? And so they're told, (laughs) they're told by this narrative, they're told, oh, it's kindness and dialogue and ending polarization and reaching out across the divide. Can't you find that in your life? Isn't that what happened to you? It's a fundamentally conservative approach. And it's it's also entirely offender centered, right? So it's very focused on this redemption story, sort of Christian in the broad sense, redemption story, a, a salvation story. And it's not about the people that suffered and were harmed because they become sort of supporting characters in this story. They're just like the nice person that comes along and helps, or they're the victim who just had to suffer for this person to later have this realization about their life. So this whole, and it's indicative too of just this whole problem with, with the de-radicalization industry, which is entirely offender centered. Um, Victims are sort of props. And I, again, I don't think that's the intent Uh, Of most formers, I think to some degree I blame the academics more who are in these circles and who are not thinking about what would accountability really look like? What would it mean to really center the communities that have been harmed? What would it mean to see reform not as someone living a life of crime free job holding productivity, but actually see the objective of this process to be repairing harm and reparative justice?
3: Jane, you mentioned just a second ago one of the—I guess the—the the other side of the compassion narrative. You, you have these people who that their story is: I met the nice black person, I met the nice Jewish person. But there is the other sort of story that comes up in a few prominent narratives, which is a—you know—I was beating the nice black person and. As I bloodied their face, I realised, oh, we all bleed red, and this yes. is what turned me against it, which I often think is not an especially scalable solution to oh, God. the issue of people <laughs> joining hate crimes, at least with the other way. we we got to sign every Nazi a black person <laughs> to be their friend, but no, that's probably not the way to do it.
1: Joan, in addition to, I guess, these stories of individuals who've been deprived in some way of a normal life, and therefore find themselves vulnerable to fascism's appeal. It's also the case that, and I'm thinking of some recent cases in Australia in particular, that you will find good boys from good families finding themselves in these groups. So in other words, relatively normal, people in normal situations or young men. So can you explain in that circumstance what is the appeal of fascism? How does fascism appeal to the affective dimensions of life under contemporary capitalism
2: yeah i think there i think there's there are real desires that people are trying to meet and there are psychological needs that they're filling in this particular twisted way i do think there's been too much emphasis on trauma right but trauma can also look all different kinds of ways it doesn't necessarily mean you are at the margins of society or particularly oppressed in a sort of general social sense, but one of the th- one of the things I was writing about was this idea of the void, and it's it's a kind of complicated argument there because, on the one hand, you'll you'll often hear people talk about there being a kind of void that people are trying to fill by joining fascist movements, but I think there's kind of a misunderstanding of what that is and what that implies. So, the sort of mainstream centrist like de radicalization approach would would probably tend to say these people need a different source of identity and meaning so we need to find them something else that will provide them the same the same thing they're looking for in in these movements that we can kind of create for them another sense of self and of belonging but the reason why i think that's too simplistic is that fascism is fundamentally it has a different it has a different perspective on truth and meaning than most people have. So there are different philosophies, of course, about truth and about knowledge. But most people believe that if there is some kind of truth to be known, that you uncover it in some way, that the truth could, that you could be confronted with being wrong about something in some way that there, and whether that's a matter of sort of finding this external reality or sort of fitting all your beliefs together coherently, that that truth is about sort of finding something out and fascism fundamentally sees truth as being about violence rather than sort of the discovery of some external thing. It's about myth and it's about violence. So the person who simply knows and intuits that they have the power to, or they should have the power to rule. Right. And this is sort of proven with violence. So truth is kind of created through violence And Eric Fromm, who might use in that section, who, who studied fascism, he was a German Jewish intellectual who fled Nazi Germany as part of the Frankfurt School, Marxist intellectuals came to the United States, wrote extensively on sort of fascist psychology. He wrote a very long book called The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness, studying the psychological mechanisms involved. And Fromm agrees that there is a kind of void that people are trying to fill But that it's, but he calls it idolatry, this process of filling the void. So people are grasping for something that will give them this sense of power by identifying with it, that will give them this sense of power and security and, and heroism and so forth. And that fundamentally leaving that behind involves like a whole other different attitude toward truth, right? So it's not something that you just go find and pick off the shelf, like, oh, this is going to fill this uh, void in my life. And then I also think about what's what's creating this for people? And how how is capitalism creating this sense that there's this gaping absence of meaning that people have to go find a substitute to fill? And fascism is great at sort of telling people, like, this is, this is who you are, right? It's kind of the marketing, right? This is who you are. You've been wondering, now we're going to tell you you've been disinherited as white people or uh, as men or so forth, right? And we're going to give you your identity back. But it's fundamentally also unstable, because it's not ba- it's not based in reality. It's based in conspiracy theories and myth. And so violence just gets ramped up more and more, right, to defend this this idol. So I think it's like, how do we help people think about meaning? How do we help people think about truth? How do we help people think about the kind of community they want to live in. And to some degree, these are philosophical questions. And they're also things the left could proactively, preventatively do, not in the sense of sort of identifying people and doing sort of encountering, finding radicalization signs and not not the way that, that it's been undertaken by the state in this sort of surveillance approach, but rather like, are we building community where people, where all of us can explore collectively the things that give us meaning are we creating community around art are we marginalizing spirituality or are we giving that space right are we letting people are we creating ways to meet people's needs collectively not just not just that people need charity or aid but are we coming together to think collectively about how we can care for each other right in a society that really doesn't do that well
1: one of the things i guess i've noted in a lot of material regarding fascism and countering it is or one of the flaws is the ways in which can often be divorced from broader visions of social change. I find evidence of that in the more what would be termed the militant or radical approaches to these questions. But to me it seems, and I guess my frustration is I kind of, there's some sense in which I take this as red, that it's not sufficient to, you know, Stop the Nazis from marching or whatever it is. You know, this is, these kinds of actions have to be, in order to be both effective and substantial or, you know, embedded, must necessarily proclaim other values, alternative values, different forms of collective organizing and so on. And I guess in terms of what, you know, I contribute or others, there's sometimes an obsessive preoccupation with. Certain more vulgar expressions of fascist thought and movement, you know, I I can't see how opposition to it or understanding of it can really proceed in any concrete sense or informed sense without necessarily being or proceeding from, you know, very different understandings of what matters, what is of value, and how fascism is, you know, in a sense, a kind of outgrowth of broader systems of power and domination.
2: Right, right. I totally agree with you. You know, I think the sort of on the ground work is is crucial. There's so many people doing so many things. Uh, And I think, you know, counter organizing, deplatforming, stopping protests, stopping fascist rallies, all of that's just totally essential. But it's not going to stop the threat of fascism permanently. And we don't want to have to spend, you know, however long just playing whack-a-mole on one movement and event after another. And it's exhausting. And communities are sort of caught in this, you know, constantly needing to defend themselves and constantly needing to counter-organize against one threat after another. And there's a reality to that that that's probably going to be ongoing for a while. But we need to be thinking strategically. We need to be thinking radically about how we deal long-term with this threat. Like, how can we build institutions? How can we build dual power? How can we build projects that allow us to move past this. And even though fascists are really bad at this, we also have to be wary of the fact that they're also trying to do, in some cases, service projects or direct aid to people they think are worthy. If we look at something like Casa Pound in Italy, for example, having a free clinic for only you know people who are Italian, this kind of thing. And we can't cede that ground either. So we have to be thinking about Building, yeah, building a movement that that draws people in, that has a vision, that has values, that has that it has its own like quest for meaning, and and not just sort of being you know stuck in this defensive mode of like reacting to each new danger that emerges.
3: Jane, just finally, I see the U.S. House of Representatives recently passed a resolution condemning anti-Semitism. I think you could probably easily describe a lot of the people who voted for that resolution as being, if not anti-Semites themselves, then beholden to an electorate who wanted to see every Jewish person die in Israel. So that's sort of, that's building bridges. I think if you were to game out, you would see the implication is a, a declaration that to be Jewish is to essentially be Israeli. I noticed that when things like this have come through before, people like Richard Spencer have been very keen on them because they're saying, well, this is step one on something that I want to do. i sort of confused why... Some of these institutions, I'm not that confused, but I Mm
2: -hmm. would
3: be interested in your take on why they can't see this.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is, it's an extremely, it's just an absolutely terrible moment that we're in. So like half my family is is Jewish. I'm Jewish on my mother's side. And I consider myself anti-Zionist. I've always been anti-Zionist. And I, I'm, I'm in Jewish Voice for Peace, which isn't the largest anti-Zionist Jewish group in America. And so clearly, as someone who researches anti-Semitism, who's deeply concerned about anti-Semitism and the harm that I've seen to Jewish people in the past seven or so years in this country, I don't agree with this resolution at all. I don't think anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And certainly people who put that message forward have quite a bit to gain from it, not only in the fact that they can target Palestinians and others, Muslims and others on the left who are critical of Israel, but also they get this kind of plausible deniability or this kind of shield they can hide behind where they can say, well, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm pro-Israel, right? So it works in both directions that way. And it's it's going to be interesting to see how, how what comes out of this in terms of how people address fighting fascism going forward, there are a lot of organizations that I'm critical of that I would see as sort of part of this like countering violent extremism network who are very Zionist. And I think because because of that, there's been a failure by so many of these institutions to adequately address Islamophobia. And they miss certain things because they're so focused on this sort of Zionist narrative that Israel is this that, that any, sort of a, any sort of criticism of Israel has to be seen as anti-Semitism. But I think if, 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 we're, if we're concerned about human rights, if we're concerned about equality, if we're concerned about justice, we absolutely have to stand against this brutality, this genocide that's happening in Gaza. And we have to do that in a way that's canny and smart. Because I also see people on the left falling for anti-Semitic tropes, getting sucked in by all kinds of narratives. And the messiness of this is, unfortunately, like really fruitful for fascists. There's so many ways that this moment is helpful for uh, both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. So there's just so much work to be done. But I do take hope in the protests that I'm seeing and in the generational shifts that I'm seeing with many more young Jewish people speaking up against the war.
3: Well, Joan, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to check out the book, it is out next week, Understanding and Countering Fascist Movements from Void to Hope out through Routledge. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, Andy, that is our show. And that is Yana Passaran for 2023. Thank you to everyone who came on this year and shared their knowledge. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. And thanks to everyone who donated. We really
1: appreciate it. Yes, thanks so much. And hopefully we'll be back next year. Indeed. Well, see you in 2024. Bye-bye.
0: Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a
1: total blockade on Gaza and declared war. Stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
0: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are.
2: At home, work, driving,
0: on public transport, gardening, protesting, or
2: even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app.